0: Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, A Journey to Quantify Crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I am joined by Brian Blandin and Trace Dahlem, co-founders of Market Science. Brian and Trace, it's great to have you guys on. Great to be on. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot for having us. Yeah. So why don't we get get right into it? So, uh, you know, whoever wants to take this, what is market science? Can you can you give us a little bit of a background on, on on what market science is, what you guys do, and how you guys got started with it?
1: Yeah. So I'll go ahead and take that first. Um, so market science, we're a research firm, and we just provide traders with a statistical edge. So we publish a few different reports on a daily basis, um, looking at a couple different edges in the market looking at stuff like time of day and seasonality effects and correlations. Um, and then as well as those daily reports, we also put out long form studies. Um, so our goal in market science was basically just to um, objectify the crypto space and kind of put more statistics and um, get rid of all the theory that's been untested so far. So maybe Brian wants to, wants to cover some more about that
2: yeah sure. Uh our main belief is that there's a lot of subjectivity in the trading space and crypto currencies in general, and it was really our effort to quantify sort of the theme of this podcast, but to quantify some of the effects in the market and if there's any way to separate the signal from the noise, so distinguish what's randomness in the market from what's truly a predictive signal, and then deliver that to our subscribers. In the forms of long written research so you can see our thought process and how do we come to our conclusions how we approach the markets and try to discern an edge as well as having that information pushed on a daily basis so that you have any uh, market edges available to you for the next trading day
0: and so so brian i'll let you start with this what did what did you do uh before crypto and uh, you know, I guess you guys kind of you know went into what decided you what 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 made you guys decide to team up, which I, I guess was the lack of objectivity in this market. But how do you guys meet? How do you guys start working together? And and you know, when do you get involved with the space?
2: Sure. So I'm a data analytics engineer by profession. That's what I do uh, nine to five. And then trading has always just been a passion of mine. Uh, it's what I enjoy doing. I'm just a nerd, I guess, for markets. And so I met Trace through a trading group, basically through Twitter, um, just kind of interacting in the space. And then we were looking around, and on my personal trading account or (laughs) Twitter account, I publish a lot of studies and just any interesting facts or edges that I've found in the market. And Trace approached me and said, At the time, he was running a trading journal where he shared some of his trades and said, "Um, I have subscribers who really don't have any other source for this information. They don't know where to go to get it. There's a lot of just BS in the space. And we're looking for a more grounded approach to the markets. And so we just got talking and thought we would deliver this as a product.
0: So, so Trace, uh, you know what did what did you do before crypto? What what brought you into the space? And and when did you uh, start this journal that Brian was referring to?
1: Yeah, so before crypto, um, I really had no trading experience before this. Um, I was running a digital marketing agency, so I was just helping local and online businesses with their digital advertising and social media accounts. So yeah, so then whenever I got into crypto, after a couple of years of trading. Uh, I decided to open up a trading journal because I got a lot of requests from, you know, just different traders on Twitter and on Discord, um kind of wanting a better just a better like community of people to trade with every day and get more information. So that's kind of why I started that journal. And I would say that was probably 2 years ago. Um and then about a year after I started it, um like I or like Brian said we kind of met up and decided to start market science. Um, and that was at the beginning of this year. So about eight months ago.
0: And so so unlike others in this space, both of you guys kind of really started, um, you know, in, in crypto. So what drew you to the market and what has kept you here for the last few years? Yeah. And, oh, God. <laughs> no, please go
2: for it. So, I mean, there's a few reasons. I joined in mid-2017, I believe, when like the first real frothy bull market activity was happening. And I had been interested previously in equity markets, did a bit of options trading before then, but looked at the cryptocurrency market, Bitcoin specifically, and saw, one, the dumb money was there. Um, at the time, there really was not a lot of large institutional interest, uh, the CME futures, Hadn't launched, so there was really no way for traditional funds to get exposure to the space in a leveraged fashion. Uh, The trading products were ideal for a smaller retail investor. You could get pretty high leverage, small contract sizes, and with derivatives platforms, you could keep the majority of your funds off exchange, so you weren't exposed to counterparty risk as much. And the data availability is Pretty much second to none. Um, Almost every cryptocurrency exchange gives the majority of their data away for free. You can hook up to a real-time API and just get everything that Rhythmic would charge you an arm and a leg for in the traditional future space. And I guess finally, it's a almost purely speculative asset, or at least it was at the time. Uh, There's no real anchor to any fundamental value which causes a lot of market inefficiencies because investors are irrational and tend to act in the same irrational ways repeatedly. And so it's easier to take advantage of those inefficiencies when there's really no fundamental value or arbitrage going on.
0: And so, Trace, I'll let you take this one. What were the metrics uh, that were using when you first entered the market in, in 2017? And, and how has that progressed over the last few years?
1: Yeah, so back in 2017, kind of whenever I got started, um, like I said, I had no uh, trading background or really any finance background. Um, So most of the stuff that I was trading off of was really subjective, just like different price patterns, um, trading different breakouts and stuff like that. Over the years, I started just trading more price action based and adding more statistics as time goes on and kind of adding a more systematic approach um, to the like, foundation that I've already built. So uh, my trading nowadays isn't necessarily all quantitative. Um, I try to use quantitative research and different statistics to back up all of my trading strategies. But nowadays, I'm really looking at stuff like different day types, so like trending days versus chopping days. Uh, I look at stuff like a daily range. So can you get
0: into that? Can you you explain what the difference for our listeners is between a a trending and a chopping day, for example?
1: Yeah. So a trending day would be where um, the market closes far away from where it opened up. So we had uh, a momentum day either up or down. A chop day would be where the market just kind of ranges all day, uh, mean reverting back and forth around the daily open no real directional bias or momentum. So we can kind of differentiate those two uh, day types by a few different metrics. Uh, we use volatility and volume. Um, and this is stuff that we have on our daily report. So um, yeah, on our daily report, we have different, different algorithms um, that basically help us predict that different day type. And we also have one, like I said, about the daily range. Um, It predicts the uh, daily range based off of a few different volatility metrics. Um, And then a couple other things we look at on a daily basis for intraday trades. Uh, Just like active signals or patterns in the market for directional bias. Um, I will also look at stuff like different fractals. Um, Brian did a really good job. On our daily report, and he built something that automatically detects uh, price fractals and shows you, uh, like historically, how they played out with 24-hour returns. So just looking at different stuff like that, as well as,
0: and that's um, that's actually one of the most interesting things that I've seen in your report. So can you kind of get mm-hmm. into that a little bit more, and 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 how that works, and what you're showing uh, traders and your customers?
1: Yeah, Brian might want to want to expand on that because he built out some of the the fractal stuff uh he worked hard on that so he might want to go on that yeah
2: sure so it it uses a pretty simple machine learning algorithm that just looks at the recent price patterns just using open hollow close data and compares that to all periods historically and looks for the most similar and so this is something that a lot of discretionary trader, traders will do um, is just review past price patterns until they find something that resembles what the current price looks like. And so we, our customers find that valuable. Uh, it's a process that they would be doing manually, and it just saves them some time. And so you can see...
0: And and how how much patterns are you seeing in this market? Or are you seeing a lot of use in that fractal data? Are you seeing that you know, that are are you seeing very similar patterns in terms of price movement? Has, Has it changed over time? Are the patterns that you saw a few months ago different than the patterns that you're seeing today? So I would say like
2: the majority of the time, and I think this is true in general of financial markets, but the majority of the time, what you're seeing is a lot of noise, but at key turning points in the market. So say a parabolic blow off top or like a topping distribution, or, you know, uh, capitulation at the bottom, those patterns usually get picked up in the report because they're so distinct. Like, if you have a parabolic bull run over, you know, a month or so, where it just looks like an exponential curve going up, it's going to pick that up. And most of the times, it's going to find examples in the past that resembled it pretty closely. And the majority of the time, those End up um, reverting somewhat you know nothing goes up forever
0: yeah, I mean I think we, I think we see that a lot as well with you know all of these kind of flash crashes that we see on exchanges, right where you know we, and we've, we've seen it a few times in the last you know last few weeks alone where Bitcoin is at eleven eight and then it drops to eleven two then it goes back to eleven five and and it seems like there's a there's a very similar pattern on the downside as well
2: right, and so you'll see when those pay, play out. Um it's hard to I'll try and describe what it looks like. But it essentially shows the most recent price history and the similar price patterns, and then as well as that it marks out on a longer-term historical chart where the instances that were most similar occurred. So like in the case of a blow off top, you can see like a little marker right at the top of this parabolic rise. And if you see multiple of those, you can add confluence, say the last four times price action looked like this. It was right at the top. So maybe I should be thinking about trimming exposure, or if you're inclined to go short or trade on both sides, maybe it's a good short opportunity.
0: Yeah, and I I guess the best way, you know, having having played around with it a bit to 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 think about is imagine, you know, you see today's you know price chart, and then you see four other price charts of historical days, and it's basically days that look similar to today, and then a a longer term chart which kind of shows snapshots of those days. Um, And so the next point I want to get into uh, is the CME trading gap, and I know that this is something that. Uh, both of you guys ha- have done a lot of research, research into, and I think uh, specifically uh, Brian wanted to hit on this is you know the idea that a lot of people in the crypto market um, you know discuss the impact of this you know quote unquote CME trading gap on the price and volatility of Bitcoin. Um, you know, would love to kind of dive in here with you. And first, I'd love to just start by you know if you guys could give us a little bit of an explanation of what the CME trading gap is as well.
2: Yeah, so. <laughs> This I mean, this is still around today. If you go onto Twitter on any given Monday, you'll probably see someone reference this in their analysis. But what it is is a gap that forms because the CME is closed from Friday evening until Sunday evening, and so there's no trading that occurs in that time. So if you're looking at a open high low close chart, you just see a gap where no trading occurred, where uh, price closed on Friday and then opened on Sunday and there's this pervasive myth on crypto twitter that these that there's some magical power with these gaps that because the the space exists now price is going to retrace it has to fill the gap before it does anything so i i mean I love stuff like this. I just want to test anything that comes up to see if there's actually an edge or a bias there. If there is, I'd like to exploit it. And if not, then I could just move on with my day. So when we dug into it, first we found that 95% of all CME gaps fill. So that means that um, you know, where it opened Sunday evening, price eventually comes back to where it closed on Friday evening at some point. And that's the stat that most people like to pick up on and talk about. Like, oh, uh, 95% of all CME gaps fill. This is my trading strategy. And so, yes, that's true. But then we looked at pre and post launch of the CME Bitcoin futures. So, if the effect is actually caused by the CME, because that's the only market that closes, basically every Bitcoin market other than that is open 24 7. So, if it's, this effect is being caused by the CME closing, we would expect that the gaps fill more frequently after the CME launched. And we found that that is not true, not, not true in a significant way. Um, There's no statistical significance between pre and post CME launch. So that's the first strike against it. Um, The next thing that we looked at is to see that, okay, if you just take a short-term trade, do it, does it tend to mean revert afterwards? So if you have a gap down over the weekend, as soon as the market opens, go long. It's going to go back up, fill the gap. <laughs> um, what we found is that actually over the next 24 to 48 hours, there's actually a significantly negative expected value trade of trying to fade the gaps. So that you'd be much better off actually going long. Um, if it was a gap up and going short, if there was a gap down and that's true all the way out until the CME closes again. So (laughs) it was a pretty thorough.
0: So I I think the, (laughs) I uh, I guess the overall moral of this or, or the kind of the, the, the lesson to be learned is don't trust everything that you read on Twitter. Um, Just because somebody's got, 50,000 or 100,000 followers does not mean they know what they're talking about. Uh, and and when it, when, whenever doing, uh, you know, whenever making any investment decisions, right, you need to do your own due diligence. You need to look at the data. You know, don't, you know, you need to look at, you know, I think you said it earlier, you know, objectivity versus subjectivity.
2: Right. Yeah. And for those still prophesizing their CME gap calls, there are still open CME gaps that if you would have made that trade, you are still underwater.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I think that, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, n- nothing else to add there from my end unless, Trace, you have anything. But, you know, another really interesting piece of research uh, that you guys have done is on open interest as well. And we'd and love to kind of dive into that.
1: Yeah, I'll let you handle this one, Trace. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, um, after testing most of the uh, popular OI strategies, um, you know, like rising price, rising OI, uh, that should... Um you know, can you, we just you could can we just start really quickly
0: that. with uh with just for our listeners, just a little bit of background on what open interest and OI is?
2: Yeah. So open interest is just the total number of contracts on any futures platform. So in order for a trade to take place, um, there has to be a buyer and a seller, a long and a short. And those two agree to have a contract and bet. On their respective price directions, and so more more open interest means that there's more participants speculating on a given contract, and so the theory is that when price is going up and the amount of open interest is going up, that means that there are a lot of people betting both on the long and short side, and price is going up, and that's supposed to predict a strong bull trend, and then I mean. You can see it anywhere, if you go on Investopedia, there'll be this nice little matrix of rising and falling price and OI and what that's supposed to mean. So all we did was a study that just looks at that exact metric. Um, and we did it with a number of different analysis methods, You know, different ways to measure momentum on both of those variables and then over different time frames. And we did not find any support for the theories that... That com- those combinations of price trend and OI trend actually result in those outcomes. Looking in forward returns,
0: and so the uh, the next question and uh, and Trace, I'll I'll turn this one to you. Is what types of clients uh, do you service? You know who's who's interested in your data and the research that you guys are doing.
1: Yeah, so we found that most of our clients are—we uh, like to just say either serious or sophisticated day traders. These are kind of just, you know, not your typical retail traders that uh, just like to buy and sell based off of everything they see. Uh, we found that most of uh, our clients are people that are trading for like prop prop shops, funds, um, different institutions, as well as um, some different price action traders that are transitioning into a more systematic approach. Um, I've noticed that we've had quite a few people um, subscribe to Market Science for that reason specifically, um, as well as different media outlets. We've got a few different um, media outlets and writers um, that are using our data.
0: And so you guys have you know, to this this point, you know, focused a lot about, you know, a lot on price related data, right? Market data and, and, and ingesting data from exchanges and looking at patterns in price. What other forces uh, do you think are at play in this market beyond just, you know, pattern recognition as it relates to price? You know, what other data sources are you guys interested in? Uh, and, and beyond data, you know, what other things do you think impact the market here?
2: Yeah, so... I mean, this is a softball question for you, I guess, Josh, but um, given that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are largely speculative assets, we think that sentiment is a huge driving force, especially especially when it counts. Um, in big bull runs or bear market downturns, sentiment's virtually everything. Um, you'll rarely see euphoria like you will during an altcoin season or a Bitcoin bull run. <laughs> But then other things that we hope to look at are um, so sentiment uh, uh, exchange inflows and outflows. So there's a number of services that provide data on where money is actually moving in the crypto space. And then other things that we would like to look at are derivatives is that space matures, uh, primarily using the options. And then any other data we can get from exchanges that might be helpful. So... Like What's recently sprung up, DeFi is the craze, so possibly funding rates or lending rates on DeFi, as well as any funding rates or futures premium in the derivative space, and then just liquidations and open interest activity are all additional variables we can look at in addition to just pure price.
0: What about you, Trace? Is there anything in particular that interests you? Uh, and, and do you think there's anything at play here, right, where we see these large upwards and downwards moves in particular markets that, that are, you know, that can't be explained by data?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, kind of like Brian said, I think sentiment plays a big role into this. Um, and we haven't actually I haven't actually got to test out sentiment data too much yet. Um, it's something that I'm really interested in, though. And now that we have partnered with the tie, um, we have. You know a data provider so that's just kind of what's on my radar next and what's really interesting to me is just different just looking at different um different altcoins and how sentiment impacts those prices and i have a question for you josh as well um have you found sentiment to be more impactful on like smaller altcoins versus like maybe bitcoin or ethereum
0: yeah, I mean, certainly, I think you know it's 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 also unique combinations, right? Just because investors are euphoric doesn't mean that the price is necessarily going to go up. What we've actually mm-hmm. found, which is quite interesting from a longer term point of view, is that when investors are very euphoric, right, when the average tweet is incredibly positive, but there is a significantly high number of tweets that actually tends to be a sell signal. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, the idea that you know there there's no longer that 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 signal there that, hey, this is potentially an interesting opportunity. On the other hand, what we found to be more interesting from a longer term, not a shorter term point of view, but from a longer term point of view, is what you should look for is, is when either the average tweet on a particular asset is very high and tweet volume is incredibly low, or when tweet volume is incredibly low and investors are actually negative about a coin, kind of the idea that no press is bad press. Um, and so we launched a uh, this product with eToro, you know, this copy portfolio that basically rebalances every month using a combination of of sentiment and tweet volume based off of kind of that strategy that I, you know, just discussed with you guys. And we've seen that since launch, after all fees, it's more than doubled the performance of Bitcoin. And I think the question you, you know, specifically asked is, you know, whether or not sentiment is more relevant for altcoins than for for for, you know, larger cap coins like Bitcoin. I think a lot of that also comes down to just the liquidity of these assets, right? You know, Bitcoin yeah. can be euphoric and people can be super excited about it, but ten million dollars in new capital and Bitcoin's not going to move the price, right? Whereas mm. you have you know something smaller like we saw with Yam the other day <laughs> or with you know, Waifu Coin, yeah, yeah. All this not and actually you know bef- before we even move on, I'd love to kind of get your guys' thoughts on De- DeFi. I know we didn't chat about this before, but just off the cusp, you know, unleash yourselves. Would love to hear kind of your thoughts, but. You know, yeah. I mean, generally speaking, look, the less liquid a coin is, if more people start talking about it and are more excited, it's going to move the price more. But, but, yeah. but now, going into it, would love to kind of hear your guys' thoughts on you know the smaller coins and, and huge excitement. What do you guys think about DeFi um, and 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 what's played out these last few weeks?
2: I mean, I'm going to be honest; I don't know much about it at all. Yeah, that's kind uh, of the opposite <laughs> to me of the ICO craze in 2017. And so I'm hesitant to get involved again. I mean, the, I had the same concerns that I had with ICOs about them just being viewed as unregulated securities and having it all pretty much tracked and timestamped on a blockchain. Um, but yeah, other than, I'm, other than that, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I, if you're, I've seen people make a ridiculous amount of money in a very short amount of time in the past few weeks. So power to them. Honestly, I,
0: I think you're on the (laughs) same page as I am. I mean, it's, it's just like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I don't get, you know, look I get the idea of decentralized finance more broadly. What I don't get is how a co- co- a coin like Yam could pop up the other day and surge up to $180 a token and then go down to 10 cents in a day. You know, people are investing their money in in codes that aren't audited. You know, coins that have codes that aren't audited and they're, you know, doing DeFi yield farming and taking money from an unaudited protocol and putting it into another unaudited one into another unaudited one into another unaudited, you know, one and it it just doesn't doesn't make much, much sense to me. I don't know. I don't know. What about you, Trace?
1: Yeah, that's kind of my same views. Um, I honestly have not researched it um, too much yet. I've just been seeing people um, basically make insane gains. And like Brian said, it's kind of reminding me of all the ICOs of 2017. Um, and, you know, I was pretty late to that as well. So <laughs> Uh, maybe I should probably research some of this stuff a little bit more now. <laughs> stay on the sidelines
0: yeah well so I think it's a good transition into my next question which is to this point you guys have entirely focused on Bitcoin um, you know one why why is that the case and and two are you guys planning on expanding beyond that
2: yeah so for why we've stuck with Bitcoin uh, mainly for the reasons that I discussed above and why I got interested in the space, in the first place. I think for the most part, most of those reasons are still valid. There may be, well, there's almost definitely more institutional activity than there was in 2017, but I still think this is a largely inefficient market, as you can see by it having in value in one day back in March. Uh, But as far as expanding, I think it's on our roadmap, probably first, to expand into the Forex markets. And the reason for that and the reason for most of our decisions are data costs and infrastructure costs. So, like I mentioned earlier, crypto, almost all the data is free or cheap, relatively speaking, um, compared to trying to get d- historical data or real-time data for... Unless you're trying to get CMU data. Yeah, Exactly.
0: No, continue, continue. So so you know, why, why oh. the FX? I'm interested in hearing that.
2: Oh, so um, most FX, um, so I don't know how many listeners are aware of the mechanics of the market, but most people who retail trading Forex aren't actually trading in the spot Forex markets. It's largely interbank market. So what you have is a lot of brokers that are making their own quotes, and because of that fact, they typically give out their historical and real-time data for free, because it's really just their spreads that they're quoting to their customers. So from a data and infrastructure perspective, it's a lot cheaper for us. And also, it seems that a lot of our customers, if you were to ask them what their secondary market-to-trade would be, a lot of them would probably answer fx um and there's a lot there's a lot you can do at fx as well it's not strictly just currency pairs a lot of fx brokers also offer cfds or instruments on crude oil and gold and you know the equity indices so there's a lot you can do on those accounts
0: and yeah, so my my next question for you guys, um, you know, kind of relates to the, you know, I guess to what you were saying is, is, is client type, right? Most of the clients that you guys are supporting are active traders. And so my question for you is, you know, what is the argument for day trading BTC versus, you know, holding longer term positions? And what are the ideal time horizons that you found for forecasting Bitcoin's movement?
2: Yeah, I'll take this one again. I'll uh, let Trace answer in a second. But so... What we found is a sweet spot, usually on um, a daily time frame or uh, intraday time frame where you're taking a few major positions in a day, maybe trading around them a little bit. But the reason for that is that forecast accuracy decays over long time horizons. So if you're trying to project the price of Bitcoin a month from now or three months from now, I mean, just using, you know, like an implied volatility from the options space, you could be, it's a range of probably $8,000, what you could be at just with a neutral or even a slight bias. You'd, you'd have this huge range of outcomes. So it's hard to manage risk effectively there. And then for our studies, we want to have a decent sample size to have any confidence in what we're publishing. So if you have monthly data on Bitcoin, and I mean, it's... <laughs> The data gets a little sketchier the earlier you go in Bitcoin's history just based on you know, some of the exchanges that it was being traded on. So if you only have 36 or 60 data points, it's really not going to be conclusive unless you have an extremely large difference or an extremely large effect. And I would argue that that's probably going to get arbitraged out or found by someone pretty fast. So and this then,
0: related question is is how... When when you're looking at historic Bitcoin data, how do you separate the market as like a pre and post in terms of when data quality is good and when it's bad? Is it like I because in my head mentally, I'm like the only data that really matters is post ICO bubble to me. Is that mm-hmm. kind of the same thought process that you have? Or do you think there's a lot of that, that validity in the 2016 2017 data as well? And even before then?
2: 2016 is probably about as far back as I would go, and it, this is somewhat of an arbitrary decision that we made. But I think the r- most recent regime we've been in are has been largely driven by derivatives trading la- rather than spot trading. And so, if you look at what's dominated, like all Bitcoin trading, it, it, BitMEX really came online, and their perpetual swaps really became like the trading product in probably mid to late 2016 and then into 2017. And so that's the data we're using primarily because I would argue that that's still the regime we're in. If you're a Bitcoin trader, most uh, active or day traders are probably trading some leveraged product on uh, futures or derivatives exchange and not spot. And so that's what we think is most relevant.
0: And so, Trace, to you, when when you're making intraday trades, right, you know, let's see, mm-hmm. you 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 know, you, you see an opportunity to make it, you know, what, what are those metrics and data points that you're looking at that kind of I- help you identify those opportunities?
1: Yeah. So I kind of touched on this already and not to just chill our project, but it's really just tools that we've built uh, for our own personal trading and packaged it for uh, like our clients. So Really, uh, whenever I'm trading intraday, I'm looking at stuff uh, mostly like volatility and volume, Uh, like I said, to help gauge uh, what kind of day type that we should be expecting. Um, I'm also looking for, uh, again, with volatility, looking at a daily range to get an idea of kind of uh, the extremes of where I could take profit or look to fade moves from. And then as well, uh, look at different time of day effects. So um, looking at what time of the day is most active uh, from volatility and volume perspective, as well as just keeping in mind um, like funding rates and stuff like that. Um, and then I guess you, we, I also use um, order flow just kind of to gauge momentum and help uh, be on the right side of like the short term trend. Uh, and so I, can,
0: can you kind of explain a little bit more what you mean by order flow?
1: Yeah, so I'm just looking at uh the order book, looking at buy and sell pressure uh and momentum, basically looking for any um any quick impact on the order book of like different market participants jumping in. Um uh, I mean there's there's a couple different ways that you could Use order flow, um, but that's just kind of how I do it. It's mostly just to keep in line with the trading levels that I'm looking at. So I'm looking where liquidity is at certain um, levels that I want to buy or sell or take profit at.
0: And so, you know, you know, active trading in 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 practice or in, in theory is is a great idea, right? This market is incredibly volatile. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and there's so many opportunities. I know you guys focus mostly on Bitcoin, but the further you get down these altcoin lists, because of the lack of liquidity on a lot of these things, there are tremendous opportunities to, to, you know, to, to generate alpha, but there's also, uh, you know, tremendous constraints that, uh, you know, active trading has, uh, within the digital asset market. Can you guys kind of dive into some of those, you know, challenges that exist with active trading today?
2: Yeah. So... When you look across exchanges, and especially now, I mean, a lot of traditional brokerages have lowered their fees to zero. But trading most digital assets on their exchanges is pretty expensive to do if you're taking liquidity. So if you need to get in quickly, get in and out, and guarantee yourself a fill, you are probably going to be paying a decent amount. And so we actually highlight in our studies in our strategy reports is the impact of costs. And I don't see a lot of people in the space accurately reflecting this. Um, a lot of people will publish back tests or algos or indicators, strategies, whatever, uh, that just totally disregard the impact of trading costs.
0: And slippage as well.
2: And, yeah, exactly. So you have to worry about the actual commissions themselves. Slippage, if you're trading... Any decent size on most exchanges, you're probably taking out at least a few levels in the order book. And then I almost no one takes into account the impact of funding if you're trading on uh, derivatives exchanges on perpetual swaps. So almost any strategy that's long biased on Bitcoin is going to lose probably a tenth to two tenths on your sharp ratio just in funding costs alone which is usually and not that, captured. And <laughs> a big point.
0: Right. And it gets worse. Yeah, Ethereum
2: is but, much worse. I mean, if you were to be long Ethereum since they launched, you would just be hemorrhaging money on both sides. You would be losing directionally and just paying terribly high compounded annual interest rates just to be long.
0: Yeah, and 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 it gets you know even even worse the further down you go the list of altcoins right and I think another you know related challenge is just I mean I, I know you guys are talking mostly about options trading but but even you know the the idea of physically deploying capital on different exchanges right like you know oh, let's <laughs> say you 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 run a you run a twenty million dollar fund or a fifty million dollar fund right and and you want to trade thirty assets but only three assets are available on one exchange five on another six on another. You know, having to move capital from one exchange to, not- to another to actually enter and exit positions is a huge challenge, both in terms of time, you know, because it takes time for transactions to post on a blockchain. In the case of Ethereum, for example, it takes six minutes, uh, but it can be even longer for other blockchains. Um, but also it's difficult. It's, it's difficult. It's costly. And if you you know if you want to enter a big position in an asset, especially in a spot market, let's say you want to take a big position on Litecoin, for example, you'll need to physically have. You know, let's say you want to make a twenty million dollar Litecoin trade, you can't just go into the spot order book on Binance and place it on twenty million dollar trade. There's going to be way too much slippage, right? Oh, so the you actually will pretty to- much
2: run away from you instantly.
0: <laughs> exactly, and 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 you know we're we're not yet at the point where where crypto has you know. A, real prime brokerage yet, right? Where you can actually, you know, just have capital in one one place and have it deployed across a number of exchanges, which I think is another challenge.
2: Yeah, I agree. And especially some of the strategies that we focus on because we aren't just taking advantage of price direction, whether it's going up or down, but also uh, second order effects like volatility and trend that we like using other instruments. So if you were to try and execute all of the strategies you would need accounts on at least a, um, a directional derivatives platform and then probably Darabit and FTX to take advantage of their options contracts on Darabit and the move contracts on FTX, which all offer different ways to uh, take advantage of edges.
0: Right. You, so, so you need to <laughs> have enough capital. capital isn't straightforward. Exactly. You can't just exactly. open an
2: E-Trade account and have every um, instrument available to you.
0: Right. A hundred percent. And and so my next question, um, is, uh, you know, what, what are your guys' thoughts on technical analysis? <laughs> oh man. I, I could probably go all day on this one. Yeah, um, Brian,
1: you can go ahead and handle
0: this.
2: I know you got a lot to say about technical analysis. <laughs> no, I'll try not to offend anyone listening.
0: Um, but it's, <sighs> I, I want I, a hot I, take. I want a hot take. Don't 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 feel bad offending people. I mean, like, I, feel, like...
2: I, I honestly. I think ninety nine percent of what I see is probably BS, and it might even be it might even be helpful to whoever is doing it. But there's just so many issues with it. Um, it's for starters, it's not falsifiable. Um, it's not reproducible. So even with any pattern, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea what classical chart patterns are, but a head and shoulders pattern, for example, you could have two so-called technical analysts look at the same chart. One could say it's a head and shoulders pattern. Another could say it's a rising wedge, or apparently there's different expectations of a rising wedge and an asymmetrical triangle, or God knows, I have no clue, but all these different things are just written in a book from 50 years ago. People read it, take it at face value and then just start drawing lines all over their charts, and then selling their subscription services for hundreds of dollars a month. It, it's just crazy. And like you read through it, and most of the examples are cherry picked. So someone said, "Okay, uh, this triangle pattern—it just you just draw your lines here, and it breaks out to the upside." And then they find some example, some historical example where they can neatly draw this pattern out, and price did what they said it does just completely glazing over all the other times that it didn't, or because of the fact that you're just looking through historical chart pattern chart data and you can see what happens after, you could easily just tell yourself, oh, no, this isn't a valid pattern because it didn't do what I expected it to do after. So th- there's just no way to verify that anyone has any actual skill or that any of their methods work without an automat- like a audited real money track record showing that they have some skill at doing and, this, and,
0: and and I think too the <laughs> point that you 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 hit on earlier as it relates to you know back testing your strategies and looking at things like slippage and trading cost etc. You know that's not something that's taken into account at all um, with, with a lot of this TA that's done.
2: No, it's not, and because I mean because yeah, basically you could just draw a new chart every day and you know just ignore all the calls that you got wrong just retweet the ones that you got right and just
0: make yourself look
2: like a god.
0: <laughs> it's, so, so it's just extremely frustrating. So so one thing you guys mentioned to me when we, we chatted before this is, you know, all of the quote unquote crypto influencers and, uh, and analysts in this space, you know, that are spouting a lot of, you know, you know, I guess for lack of better words, unsubstantiated claims relating to the predictability of Bitcoin's price. Uh, do you guys want to kind of shed some light on that trend?
1: Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think Brian kind of hit on it a little bit there. Um, like most of these claims about predicting Bitcoin's price is just subjective and unverifiable and really no uh, like systematic approach to it at all. Just cherry picking uh, different, really unrelated uh, metrics to try to form a certain picture. That's really just my opinion on it. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's
2: not just crypto either. Like you see the same thing in stocks, I mean, FX, yeah, everything. Sure. Um, there's, it's just the promise of making easy money with no work required, I think is mm-hmm. so lucrative to people. It is so easy to just say, all you have to do is follow my calls. I'm going to tell you when to buy and sell. Based on this method that some guy cooked up in the 1920s, and like we're all going to be rich. We're all going to start with five hundred dollars, cash out with five million, and fly on a private jet somewhere.
0: So I think re- related is you know one of the biggest challenges for people when they first enter the space is they don't really know how, who to turn to and who to go to and where to find more information and to learn how to trade. And I think a lot of the times it's just people that are you know trying to you know. Secure their financial future and 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 make a better life for themselves. So, what recommendations would you give uh, to two different groups of people? The first is to somebody who's really just started trading and is now entering into crypto to feel more confident and comfortable in their trading decisions, and the second being somebody who comes from traditional markets who hears us talking about things like the slippage and the funding rates and all the nonsense that goes on in crypto to make them more confident to trade in this market.
2: Uh, Yeah, so. The first group of people, I think the most, the best advice would just be to have realistic expectations. Um, you know, it's an often quoted statistic that ninety or so percent of day traders lose money. So if you're not losing money, you're doing better than almost everyone else trading. So keep that in mind because I think it's an easy cycle to just churn. Um, especially, it, it seems like a lot of people come in late. Usually, they see. Other people that have already made ten x their money, and then they want to get in on it, and then the first person they find is someone offering them to make them ten times their money, typically with no clue what they're doing, and are just there to steal their money via subscription fees, and then they have no actual skill at doing it. The people lose any money they w- they would have invested, and then the it's just like a vicious cycle to repeat. So I think I don't I think. Uh, the best advice would just be, you know, learn what you're doing first. Don't expect to make an ungodly sum of money right off the bat. Like that's not promised to you.
0: And, and I, I mean, I hear a lot of, <laughs> a lot of times, you know, people entering the space will say like, Oh, my goal is to make 2% a day. And I'm like, if you make 2% a day, exactly. you're you going to be the, exactly. You're going to be the <laughs> richest person in the entire world. Like you need to, I guess, set your expectations and control your expectations, right? If you're making more than 12% a year, you're freaking killing it, right? Um, you know, let alone just if you had bought Bitcoin five years ago, right? You know, um, you would have done incredibly well. So I think that's, that's really good piece of advice. I mean, Trace, do you have anything to add there? And and, and anything, you know, in terms of, you know, getting somebody who's not from crypto, you know, comfortable with this space?
1: Um, yeah, I would just say for one, try to take a more statistical approach to it. Uh, I think that's one thing that I wish I learned a lot earlier. I think that people should take a more um, statistical approach to things and um, really try to understand the market and have more realistic expectations than um, to come in your first year in crypto and compete with people that have been trading in the space for years. Um, and you just have to realize the people that you're trading against. You know, like, um, it's it really, I think, you know, we, we're sitting here talking about uh, like technical analysis and stuff like that. But in the grand scheme of things, there are a lot of people in the crypto space that are smarter than you realize. And I, I think it's just good to keep in mind that um, you can actually enter the space and take it slow and not expect to just be the number one trader. Um, as soon as
0: you get in yeah I think i I think that's good that's good advice you know for sure i mean we we see a lot and i and we talk to a lot of them i mean there are a lot of sophisticated traditional institutions that are on you know either on the sidelines or that are quietly you know involved in crypto that are taking advantage of all of these uh you know opportunities for asymmetric returns that exist in this market mm-hmm. um and so you know, my next question for for you both, um, you know, is, is is Brian first and then Trace. What worries you most about crypto, and, and what do you think are the biggest risks for the digital asset space? And then, and Trace, I'd like you to follow up on that as well.
2: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the big one for me is always regulations um, in terms of the government, because I think at a whim, the world major world governments could just decide to shut off the fiat arm ramps. So basically, say, yeah. Uh, Coinbase, you cannot take ACH transfers from these banks into their trading accounts. And I think that would pretty much crater the price immediately. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin network would still be fine. Everything would still mm-hmm. run. Nodes would still, you could still transact in it. But in terms of fiat value, I think that would do some pretty serious damage.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think regulation is one of the big ones. Uh, like Brian said, if they were to just decide that. Uh, they want to shut off all the, the fiat on-ramps. That would pretty much kill, um, I think, a lot of the crypto market. Um, as well as, I think one of the biggest risks is the exchanges. Um, just in general, I think trusting some of the exchanges, um, especially when you get into all these small altcoins and you're having to send Bitcoin and Ethereum to all of these different exchanges that really have no... You know they really have not shown any reasons that you should trust them with <laughs> all the money that you're about to send, so I think that's one of the biggest risk and that's what I actually uh faced whenever I first got into crypto is I got uh not very much money, but at the time it was like around a thousand dollars and that was like the first couple of months whenever I got here so uh, I got that stuck on an exchange and I wasn't able to get it off for months so that's just one one risk that I think uh kind of worried me the most.
0: And so on the other hand, let's kind of, you know, end with, with something a little bit happier. What, what are you guys most excited about in this space? You know, it can be a development, it could be a product, it could be a project, you know?
1: Yeah, I think I'm really, I'm just excited to see all the new uh, tools and services that are being built now that uh, we, you know, after Bitcoin set a new all-time high in 2017, seemed like once the market started uh, cooling off, it seems like a lot of people started building these really cool projects. So that's something that's been really interesting to me is just seeing all the new um, services and tools for uh, traders being built.
0: What about you, Brian?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be excited about. Um, The number of exchanges has increased, and I think the quality of a lot of exchanges has increased alongside that. I'm excited for the growth of derivatives. So Deribit's options platform um, is just growing rapidly and is pretty much posting new open interest and in trading volume records uh, on a monthly basis, which is awesome. I think for to have a mature options market would be awesome on Bitcoin. And then just in terms of a global asset, I think you know it's gaining the exposure that it deserves. I know for a lot of millennials, when they look for uh, an inflation hedge or a safe haven asset, I think Bitcoin is definitely coming into discussion alongside gold. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the growth potential there is awesome. I'm not a huge, you know, macro long-term forecast, but I definitely hold spot Bitcoin and I'm always bullish long-term.
0: That's why I'm here. So I think there's a lot to be excited about long-term. All right, cool. And, and a last, you know, question is, Do you guys have any book recommendations?
2: Yes, always. (laughs) But um, I think, like, the Bible that I kind of go by and the one that I reread and have the most post it notes in is Evidence Based Technical Analysis by David Mm -hmm. Aronson. And uh, for those who haven't heard of it, it basically breaks down all of the biases that we're subjected to as humans and how those biases. Uh, basically lure us into thinking that technical analysis is more effective than it is, and then proposes an alternate solution where you test any idea you have and provides methods to determine whether the results of that test are caused by randomness or there's actual true signal there. And that's just a gold mine of information.
0: What about you, Trace?
1: Yeah, so that's one of my top uh, book recommendations as well. Um, Another good one, I think, is uh, Python for Data Analysis by Wes McKinney. Um, that's a really good book if you want to get into um, Python and a little bit more quantitative approach. Um, for people more beginner traders, um, I would say a couple of good books by uh, Mike Belafiri. Bella I think that's how you say his name. Uh, One Good Trade and Playbook. Those were two of my favorite books uh, whenever I was first getting started trading.
0: And so, where can everybody uh, find out about you guys? Where can they you know, follow you guys on Twitter? Where can they sign up if they're interested in market science?
2: Sure. So, the website is marketscience, with, that's two S's.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter account at marketscience, again, um, two S's, all one word. And we are offering a 20% discount to anyone who listens to the podcast and would like to subscribe. Uh, just use the discount code TIE, T I E, and there'll be 20% off uh, your subscription. Yeah. And I'm at um, on Twitter at Quant Fiction, Q U A N T F I C T I O N.
1: Yeah, and you can find my Twitter at Bitdealer underscore, so B I T D E A L E R underscore.
0: Great. Well, it was uh, it was fun having you guys on, you know, chatting, uh, chatting crypto. And I'm super excited. You know, we just partnered uh, with market science. You know, these guys are gonna be able to do some really cool stuff with our data, you know, combine it with a lot of the you know, market data that they were talking about and, and very interested in in seeing what types of signals they're able to produce by, you know, combining sentiment and uh, market data. So thanks again for joining us, guys.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us, Josh. Yeah, it was thanks awesome, so much, man. man.